Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, Biden administration ousts Trump's Border Patrol chief, announced the June 24th New York Times, explaining in the subhead that Rodney Scott, quote, had become known for his support of President Donald Trump's signature border wall and had resisted a Biden initiative to stop using the phrase illegal alien, close quote. Ergo, we are to understand, his forcing out by the White House, suggesting a meaningful departure from the immigration policies of the previous administration. The message is undermined by the subsequent acknowledgement from the paper's anonymous homeland security source that Scott, quote, could remain in the department, reassigned to a new post, close quote. The notion of real change is undermined more severely by a close look at Biden's actual immigration policy, particularly with regard to Central America, which includes familiar promises to promote the rule of law, security and economic development in the region and to fight corruption. Familiar because they've been used for decades as cover for policies that pour money into regional governments who agree to use it to protect the profits of foreign investors by violence, if necessary, and it's always necessary, and even when it means communal and environmental devastation, which also are par for the course. So what's new? We'll talk about Central America policy and Honduras in particular with Laura Carlson director of the Americas program at the Center for International Policy. Also on the show, Texas State Representative Jim Murphy may wish he'd never called attention to Chapter 313, the state program that offers companies major tax breaks to locate in Texas. The alarming price tag attached to Murphy's proposal to expand the program led some to examine Chapter 313 carefully for the first time. The Houston Chronicle produced a groundbreaking investigative series on the program and its costs. A somewhat motley coalition of opposition was formed, and now, after being easily renewed three times since 2001, the program is set to expire. We'll hear why that's good news for Texas schools, taxpayers, and the planet from Greg Leroy, executive director of the group Good Jobs First. That's coming up, and we're going to get right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Human rights activists and historians have long pointed out that anti-immigrant fervor against people from Central America, in addition to its fundamental inhumanity, betrays an ignorance or ignoring of the main causes of migration from Central America and the relationship of those causes to U.S. actions in the region. Now Biden administration officials are talking about rooting out corruption as part of a policy to discourage migration. And if you hold a vision of the U.S. as valiant bringer of democracy and defender of human rights, that might sound plausible. But if you're aware of the U.S.'s actual historical and present-day role in Central America, it lands very differently. Our next guest has just written about this. Laura Carlson is director of the Americas Program at the Center for International Policy. She joins us now by phone from Mexico City. Welcome back to Counterspin, Laura Carlson. Thank you, Janine, for the invitation. 
Well, listeners may have heard that the Biden plan promises to promote the rule of law, security and economic development in Central America, explicitly tied to the idea that, as Vice President Harris put it recently, they stay home. It seems as though it's being packaged as a shift in course in response to some new humanitarian view of migrants. But hasn't that always been the U.S. claim for their interventions in Central America, law, security, and economic development? And then what has that meant in reality? Yeah, historically, there has been the justification that the United States is helping Central America. And that's what we want to challenge at this time. The basic idea behind the Biden plan is going to the root causes, and yet there's no mention whatsoever of the numerous forms of intervention that have caused a deterioration in the rule of law, that have actually heightened corruption in the midst of what he calls his anti-corruption campaign, and that have made living conditions in so many of these countries, but especially in Honduras, so terrible that people are fleeing. So the point of going back to a lot of that history and particularly looking at the 2009 coup d'etat in Honduras, we're about to see the 12th anniversary of that, is not necessarily to assign blame, although it's important to understand that, but to really take into account how these forms of intervention have directly led to the conditions that migrants are fleeing in Central American countries, and again, particularly in Honduras. Well, uh, historian Aviva Chomsky was noting that the Biden plan includes specifically the idea of, of aid money going to upgrading local military and police forces, and that's seen as somehow being part of the anti-corruption campaign. But I mean, we we know the role that those that those military and police forces have played. And so, I, I mean, if I could just draw you out further on, on that aspect of it, and particularly with regard to Honduras. That's right. And we do know the role because there have been investigations and there have been scandalous cases, particularly in the Awas case, where the DEA was in a helicopter on a supposed anti-drug mission and shot native people in Honduras. There have been abuses all the time, and and it's not just abuses that happen within the system. If you look at how the Honduran military and police work, the entire system is built on a high degree of corruption, of complicity, and of abuse of human rights. Supposedly, under Central American cooperation plans over the last decade at least, there's been a lot of U.S. taxpayer money invested in training police and human rights, in training the military, and then many of these same military people who've been trained uh, at the School of America's Watch in the United States and at other facilities end up being the major violators of human rights, including extrajudicial executions, sexual abuse, you know, whole litany of abuses that later come out, and they're the same people that have been trained in the United States. So it's kind of unfathomable that they expect to get a different outcome from this. And that's where you have to start wondering, what do they really expect? Are they trying to eliminate the root causes of migration and the problems in Central America, or are they generating contracts 
for intelligence military complex in the United States, which gets this aid money. Honduras doesn't get it. Honduran organizations, generally speaking, don't get it either in order to continue, you know, this revolving door between the companies and between the lobbyists and between the campaign donations and the politicians. So there's a really a lot of skepticism within the United States, those of us who have worked in solidarity, but also within Central America as to what the Biden administration really plans to do with this $4 billion package of aid. Well, let's talk about the the sort of spotlight of your recent piece. Well, first, I wanted to note, as you do, that Honduras is the source of the majority of Central American migrants to the U.S. So it's notable that Vice President Harris on her recent trip didn't go there, you know, or, or go there, uh, you might say. And that's telling. But many listeners will remember, we talked about it numerous times on this show, the 2016 murder of Honduran indigenous rights and environmental activists. Vesperta Cáceres. Now there's a case coming up involving the people behind the people who killed her. And you say that that kind of provides a, a test case for what Biden's Central America policy and anti-corruption policy is really going to mean. That's right. There's the fact that she didn't go to Honduras was a pretty obvious reason in that the president, Juan Orlando Hernandez, is mired in corruption accusations and a considerable amount of evidence. First, there was a stolen election where he wasn't even supposed to be allowed to run for re-election in the year 2017. And now a series of cases in the New York District Court where his brother has already been sentenced to life for drug trafficking. And there was testimony that the profits from that drug trafficking actually went into Juan Orlando's campaign. There's a couple of other cases that are coming out now, too. So he's a complete embarrassment in the idea that you would launch an anti-corruption campaign with this person as your counterpart, you know, just rest credibility from, from the get-go. Now, in the case of Berta Cáceres in the trial, all eyes are on this trial because many people will recall that the first trial, the hitman, the murders themselves, who actually carried out the crime, were convicted. And they included people that worked for the hydroelectric company, DESA, that was building the dam that Berta and the Lenka people opposed on their land. And it also included former and even active military members. So just in that first trial, it became clear the kind of complicity that was going on between the state and between the company to get rid of a movement and an individual who were standing in the way of their lucrative businesses, illegal businesses in many cases. Now, the family of Berta and the movements, Copin, the movement that she founded, that her daughters are now leading, have insisted all the way along that if there is to be real justice, there has to be a conviction for the, those who planned the crime, not just those who were hired to carry it out. There has to be a revelation of the interest behind this, because otherwise you have a situation that sends a very strong message that if a land defender gets in the way of a mega project that has the backing of a corrupt state, they can be assassinated with impunity. They want justice in the case of Berta, but they also want to set a precedent that this cannot happen again anywhere. 
And that's why it's so important on an international level as well. David Castillo was the head of DESA, the hydroelectric company. At the time of the murder, they have presented overwhelming evidence that he was monitoring Berta's actions, that he was in constant contact with the men who have been convicted of carrying out the murder. And there's also been evidence presented that links him to criminal structures behind the imposition of these mega projects. So this trial is critical not only because it goes to the masterminds behind the murder, but also because it opens the door to several other accusations and charges that have already been filed that continue to go up the line and continue to look for the very powerful and the so far untouchable interests that led to this crime that affected so many people throughout the world. Well, let me just ask you finally, when Berta Cáceres was killed, there was, in the U.S. media, there was outcry, you know, they, they covered it, major media covered it. But in that coverage, we at FAIR found that almost none mentioned that the regime, the leadership that was involved in that, none of them connected to, to the 2009 coup or the fact that that coup was supported by the U.S. under Barack Obama and then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. In other words, any potential involvement of the U.S. in that crime was kind of erased from the coverage. What are your thoughts about what media could be doing? What are you concerned they might do um, during this upcoming trial? And I, I guess it's just we're hoping for them to make the connections that are there. Definitely. The connection has to be made. And this is a good time to do it as well because it's the anniversary of the coup. The coup is not something that just happened in the past in Honduras. It has basically destroyed practically the democratic institutions in the country and placed the country on a progressively authoritarian track that includes these high levels of corruption and impunity. The exercise you did is really important. It's important that people understand that because, as I said, this historical blindness, it's not just a problem of not recognizing the responsibility of the United States. It's a problem that if we don't recognize that responsibility, if we don't recognize that history and how things got as bad as they are now, there's no way that it can be fixed. $4 billion won't do the trick. $8 billion won't do the trick. You know, $100 billion could make things worse if you're giving it to a system that's fundamentally corrupt and that has never been fully returned to a democratic state since the 2009 coup. And you could go back and look at a number of factors in the earlier dirty wars and U.S. interventions that contributed to as well. So we have to thoroughly analyze that history. We have to thoroughly take into account mistakes that were made, powerful interests that have overridden democracy and have overridden human rights and have made massacres of land defenders, not just at the Cáceres, but scores of land defenders in Honduras possible and led to the extreme rate of violence and poverty that we're seeing today that, of course, has been now exacerbated by the pandemic and the hurricanes themselves, to just blithely say we're going to go in now as if nothing happened before and we're going to help these people without taking responsibility is going to have a terrible outcome for the Honduran people and for the cause of justice on a global basis. 
We've been speaking with Laura Carlson, director of the Americas Program at the Center for International Policy. Her article, The Trial for Berta Cáceres' Murder, Will Test Biden's Central America Policy, appeared recently in Foreign Policy and Focus, among other outlets. Thank you so much, Laura Carlson, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you. The U.S. socioeconomic status quo that enriches so few and neglects so many can only be sustained by, not to put too fine a point on it, myth. You have to tell the same stories so repeatedly and forcefully that people will question what's before their eyes. There are many myths, of course, but an important one is that if we give corporations tax breaks, they'll just turn that gift right around and support the community with, first and foremost, jobs. And if you don't give them that break, well, they'll just take all those benefits to someplace that will. That narrative is unraveling right now in Texas, where a massive and particularly perverse subsidy program known as Chapter 313 is set to expire, thanks to the work of a range of groups and reporters, particularly at the Houston Chronicle. Here to explain what's happening and what's at stake is Greg Leroy, executive director of Good Jobs First. He joins us by phone from Maryland. Welcome back to Counterspin, Greg Leroy. Thanks, Jenny. Great to be with you. So subsidies, tax breaks, sweetheart deals, they're in the DNA almost of many state and local, as well as the federal government. But Chapter 313 still stands out. Uh, It was passed in 2001 and renewed three times since by wide margins. But that seems to have been in good part because not a lot of people knew what it was actually doing. How did Chapter 313, or how does, we don't quite know yet, but how does 313 work in Texas? Sure. So it's really a sweetheart mainly for the oil and gas industry. And the way it works is that companies apply. They say they're going to build a new facility or they're going to expand an existing facility or even under the old rules, they're just going to refurbish or do a bunch of maintenance work on an existing facility. And they want to get a 10-year, 100% property tax cut and exemption for that new value. And that's real money, right, For especially for capital-intensive facilities like refineries and petrochemical plants because they're they're very capital intensive. The school district would be the biggest loser, of course, in that transaction because school districts are the most expensive local public service. But the state would then reimburse the school districts and kind of paper over the losses. So it was really the state at the end of the day that was losing a lot of money, although school districts were losing money too. And At the end of the day, the bill was coming up to about a billion dollars a year from the state treasury. The annual cost of this program has been climbing, climbing, climbing over the years, even though nobody really understood it, because it is kind of a shell game, right, between local and state government. Well, you've kind of answered it, I was going to say, who have been the big winners. Uh, Who's who's losing out? Who's on the other end of the deal? (laughs) Well, I would say both state taxpayers and local taxpayers. I mean, we issued a study back in... March, in which we documented that 52 school districts in the state of Texas lose more than $1,000 per student per year to corporate welfare. And the biggest, but, but not the only culprit behind those numbers, is Chapter 313. It's just a, a, a big net loss for public services generally, 
And schools will always be the biggest losers in that equation because education is the most expensive local public service. And frankly, small businesses and homeowners and everybody else who had to pay higher taxes in many cases to make up that difference lose. And also school districts that are in non-industrial areas, school districts in rural areas that don't have refineries Mm -hmm. or chemical plants, they're contributing to the pot of money at the state that then goes and pays the school districts in the industrial areas of the state. So it's really kind of a shell game even even among school districts around the state. Well, that explains the title of the Houston Chronicle series, Unfair Burden, yes. uh, led, I believe, by Mike Morris and John Tedesco. And they really, it seems, they just checked the receipts on the promises, <laughs> the promises these companies made in exchange for these subsidies. What was key from, from that series and or other investigations into the extent to which corporations were keeping the the promises that premise these deals. Yeah, the big series by the Houston Chronicle can't be under applauded. Frankly, they really dug into, as you said, they checked the receipts. They said, first of all, let's look at how we're doing on job creation here. And in many cases, we're barely getting any jobs out of many of these deals because when you subsidize making a plant more capital intensive. Well, by definition, that can often mean fewer jobs mm-hmm. uh, over time. They also looked at the financial impact on public services, and they looked at the impact, the long-term impact, the kind of creeping up of the, of the state costs. It was a soup-to-nuts investigation. They basically said, by every measure of what we think we're supposed to get out of these things, which is top of the list, obviously, is jobs and additional tax revenue, we're actually not getting much of either, and we're losing a lot of revenue. Yeah, one of the things I noted was that hardly any applications were being denied, like 2.5% of them. It was kind of, you know, if you say you want it, you get it. They found companies announcing they were going to move to Texas before they even applied for the waiver. So it wasn't wasn't an incentive at all, you know. And Dick Levine, who I saw on your site, cited from the group Every Texan, Mm -hmm. he talks about research that says that 85% of projects that got abatements would have gone to Texas anyway, because after all, it it has to do with, you know, if you're talking oil and gas, it's what's in the ground, you know, that's where they want to be. It's not a matter of taxes. Yeah. And just to flesh out that cast of characters that came together here, it really was kind of a perfect storm. So the progressive state tax and budget group is called Every Texan, and Dick Levine there has been all over this thing since the first time it was enacted Mm -hmm. 20 years ago. On the right came the Texas Public Policy Foundation, a libertarian think tank, which decided to weigh in against this because you're picking winners and losers, and government is trying to shape you know, industrial policy and so on and hurting public services. Then the faith-based network, the Industrial Areas Foundation, they have 13 community groups around the state. They weighed in against this because of the harm to public education and the fact that they are very big about a pro-family agenda. Even the Texas AFL-CIO issued a statement against it, which was unusual because there are a modest number of union jobs in some of the facilities on the coast. But they basically were very blunt, saying even our members aren't really benefiting very much because the job creation is so modest and the harm to public services is real and big. Right. 
And according to the Chronicle, only one company ever had to repay a tax break for failing right. to meet the job creation target, even yeah. though Zero lots, accountability. And lots of them have fallen short. Can we just pivot for a second to the origin story, which just, I mean, proponents claimed that, <laughs> you know, the, they were brandishing this industry magazine and said, Texas is losing out. We're 37th in the country on bringing in manufacturers. But what was the reality there? In 2001, the most influential of several magazines that talk about you know, state economic development trends, it's called Site Selection, published their annual ranking, which erroneously said that the state had captured three projects because there was a typo and should have been 73. <laughs> and instead of saying 73, by having only three deals captured, the state ranked very low among the states. Literally a typo. The fact that nobody checked that, that nobody looked at that number and said, that's impossible, like we're a huge state, we're the second biggest state in the country, there's no way we're not going to have a lot of deals, right? These rankings are not based on proportionate rates, they're just absolute number rankings, like that's a crazy number. Instead, the chamber and other business interests used it to say, oh, we got to have a new tax break. You know, we're we only got three deals. The, the sky is falling. Wow. Wow. Well, it does matter that it's energy companies at the center here in Texas and in Louisiana because, of course, bigger picture, if those companies in particular had to really pay the real costs of doing business, that would really change incentives and priorities in the direction that we need to survive and all stuff like that. <laughs> you know, it, it matters that it's energy here. It does. And, you know, the same issues play out in Louisiana where groups that we've been working with have been fighting this for a long time, too. They don't call the lower stretch of the Mississippi Cancer Alley for nothing, the the stretch between Baton Rouge and New Orleans, because it has a very high rate of cancer, mostly in communities of color, neighboring the facilities along the lower Mississippi. And certainly the same issues apply to many, many parts of Texas as well, not to mention the climate change issues and Hurricane Harvey, you know, is exhibit Z uh, of the problem. So, uh, yes, if fossil fuels paid their full freight for their extraction and their burning, we have a very different incentive system for getting to renewables. Well, finally, there's a great quote in Aileen Brown's Intercept piece from organizer Broderick Baggard of Together Louisiana. In a lot of cases, it's not that these battles have been lost. They just haven't been fought. What you're seeing for the first time is the battles being fought. Now, we know that industry is going to keep fighting for these subsidies, but it seems like, and you're citing the kind of wide range of of folks who came together in coalition, some folks have seen some daylight on an issue that they might not have expected. I mean, they're not giving up either, are they? No, they're not. They will come back. They will try to win a renewal of of some version of this, some, some mutation of it. But I think Baggert's point is exactly right. In many cases... The tax break industrial complex has not been challenged, and it's been in place so long, and people just take it for granted because it's been on autopilot all these years. It might actually be a lot more vulnerable than people think. We've been speaking with Greg Leroy of Good Jobs First. They're online at goodjobsfirst.org. Greg Leroy, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks so much, Janine. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find them on FAIR.org. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.